0: According to uh, the July 8th, 2013 Time Magazine article entitled, The Happiness of Pursuit, since 1972, only one-third of Americans describe themselves as very happy. Um, I I imagine myself reading this to you, and I imagined I had a sneaking suspicion that a lot of you wouldn't be surprised by that, and I don't see a lot of surprised faces. By that information. And I think we could sit here this morning and point to a number of causes for this. But uh, amazingly, one of the things I want to show this morning is that uh, it could actually be our view of happiness that's bringing us down. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, I, th- I think you'll find that intriguing. I mean, it's, uh, what I want to talk about this morning is the way we see happiness, the way we perceive happiness, the way we pursue happiness. And what I would like to do is unveil this and uh, uh, ask really two questions. How do we typically view happiness and what effect is this view having on us? And I would like to address both of these questions and present a biblical corrective now some of you are looking around like you forgot to read the scripture passage and I didn't do that uh, I, I haven't my notes read passage right here so uh, just to keep people awake you know it worked <laughs> I'm going to stick very closely to my notes this morning because I have eight pages of them and uh, if I don't this will be a really really long message uh Uh, It's one of those messages where I don't want to really go off script because I think we need all of these details to get this. But we have Matthew 5 opened, I presume, and I would like to turn your attention to Matthew 5, Uh, starting with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, most of us, I mean, studies reveal and polls reveal that most of us believe we're on the wrong track. I don't think that needs much commentary. I've been saying that for the last few weeks. And throughout this series, I've been arguing that one of the major reasons for that is that we're always looking down. And you recall in the first installment of this series, that really that's what we were on about, is this idea of always looking down, cutting ourselves off from Yahweh, Uh, Cutting ourselves off from the eternal, cutting ourselves off from uh, any notion other than what's the here and now. And so much of the time we find ourselves there, don't we? We're acting as if the here and now is the sum total of it all. Uh, Of course, that's going to be a breeding ground for misery. And that was the point that I made in the first message. In the second, um, I went to the public square And uh, you'll recall we looked at the fact that in America, we look around, uh, even in our nick of the woods, we look around, and there's a lot of different kinds of people, isn't there? And we believe radically different things, yet there is something that holds us all together. And and, uh, we looked at that glue, if we might call it that, that holds us all together, the philosophy of secular humanism, which is a philosophy that's always looking down. You know, secular humanism is, uh, uh, is uh, a belief where there's really no personal God in the Christian sense. There's no Bible, no Ten Commandments, no moral absolutes. And uh, uh, furthermore, we saw that secular humanism is not even, not only holding us together, uh, but it's also carrying us along. And there's many ways that we could we could look at that to see how we're carried along. But I've been giving you three. It's it's in the, within the framework of secular humanism that our laws are being written, public policy is being created, our, our kids are being educated, all within that framework, and that's how we're carried along by it. And for the last couple of weeks, I've been looking at the consequences of this. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at human dignity, and um, my argument there was... Uh, we've lost the ability to establish human dignity. Uh, we've, we've lost that. Uh, that's a major thing, actually. Uh, that's not a small thing. That's a, that's a big thing. Now, there's lots of arguments. You can go, you can, you can go to the library and you can find all kinds of arguments where people say, no, Rick, you're wrong. We can establish human dignity without looking up. And th- there's lots of arguments. It almost sounds like the, the Greek philosophers, you know, Uh, As they're searching for uh, various things, one comes along and says, okay, it's this. And then another one comes behind him and says, no, no, it's not that, it's this. And another one comes along and says, no, it's not that, it's this. And down through the course of time it goes. There are holes in all of those arguments. Without God, we have lost the ability to establish human dignity. And last week I applied that same principle to human rights, those human rights that we hold so dear to ourselves. Uh, We've lost the ability for the same reason we've lost the ability to establish those. We still have human rights there, but we've lost the ability to establish them. Um, We we have them for a time, but without the ability to establish them, uh, I don't know what they'll look like in in the near future. Unless we look up, we can't establish these things. Now, this morning, I want to I pick up where we left off last time, and I want to show how the current trajectory that we're on right now is affecting uh, our view of prosperity and happiness, uh, namely ha- happiness. Uh, how's it affected that? Well, it's affected it very powerfully. So I want to start with this question. How do we typically view happiness in our culture? And I, you know, I, as I was preparing for this message, I kind of I walked around and Tammy was one of my first uh, uh, guinea pigs, if you will, victims. I don't know. I tease her with all kinds of metaphors like that. And when I'm always bouncing these kinds of questions off her and I said, you know, when you think of happiness, what what do you, what is ha- to you? What is happy? What's it mean to be happy? And she said, well, it's the opposite of being sad. And I, I think that's yeah, that's pretty much what, how we feel about happiness. Right. It's the opposite of being sad. In other words, happiness is about a mood, right? It's about an emotion. It's about a psychological state. I mean, when you're kids, when we were kids and we were in kindergarten and uh, first grade, when we weren't eating the crayons, we were drawing things with them and uh, we would draw the sun. And if you were happy, what'd you put on the sun? If you were happy, you put a smiling face, right? You know who's the one eating the blue crayons? He's the one with the blue all over his face. That's probably the guy doing. No, we put a we put a smiley face on the on the sun. Right? If we weren't in such a good mood, um, then what would we do? Maybe put a straight line where the face is, or maybe we would put uh, the opposite. We'd put a, a sad face on the sun again, um, uh, pointing towards a mood um, and. Um, uh, I think that if we uh, if we asked each other this question, should happiness be something we strive for? I think all of us would say, yes, I I think we should all strive for happiness. But uh, in actuality, uh, it would be a silly question to ask because just by by common experiencing watching everyone around you, I mean, uh, we all know that everybody's madly in love with happiness. Uh, we're chasing happiness as if our lives depend upon it, are we not? Um, I mean, we strive to feel this certain way. We want to feel this certain way. And I would say that in many cases, happiness is really the number one goal. Now, someone might say, no, how can you come to that conclusion? How can you say that? Well, you know, when I'm, when I'm investigating these kinds of things, I, I, I have one trick up my sleeve that I don't mind revealing to you, and I like to follow the money. Where's the money? Just follow the money. Their, happiness is big business. Big, big business. In fact, happiness is happiness is a billion dollar a year business, multi billions of dollars. I was a businessman for a long time, but my calculators they didn't go up that high. I, those numbers, uh, I, I have trouble fathoming those numbers. Those numbers are so big. Um, According to uh, the same article from Time Magazine that I cited earlier, uh, happiness is a huge industry. Quote, uh, the article says, quote, we tap into that industry in a lot of ways. And that, mind you, this, this article is three years old. Uh, so I, I would suspect that we're further along, much further along in 2016 than we were July of 2013. But this gets us warmed up. Uh, we tap that industry in a lot of ways with pills, The Time poll found that 25% of American women and 5% of men say they are taking antidepressants with food. 48% of women and 44% of men admit to eating to improve their mood, uh, contributing to the U.S. obesity epidemic. With self-improvement products and services, uh, including books, audiobooks, and seminars, self-improvement is a 10 billion a year industry, about the same size as Hollywood. So is pretty astounding, isn't it? Uh, with borrowed wisdom, there are 5,000 motivational speakers in the U.S. earning a collective $1 billion a year. This is in 2013. Um, I had never even heard of this. Some of you probably have heard of this, but there are actually these apps for the phone called happiness apps. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that. Has anybody ever heard of a happiness app? There's actually a bunch of them happiness apps for your home here's an advertisement for one it's called the pebble happiness app um, they have the pebble happiness app is a program that lets you check in on how you're feeling you'll receive regular prompts that ask you to rate your mood and energy level <laughs> I'm not making this up These prompts, it's hard to do this without laughing. These prompts will occur either hourly or four times a day, depending on your choice, parentheses, during waking hours only. Uh, Parentheses closed. That probably wouldn't make you very happy being woke up by this thing. My my happy app made me miserable. I couldn't get no sleep with it. That's not in here. Uh, Back to the quote. They will also ask you where you are, who you're with, and what activities you've done recently. Uh, This information will help us provide you with deeper insights on how different environments and events impact your mood. End of quote. I'm not making this up. These are like supposedly madly popular. Um, Again, if I made my case, um, what is is madly being pursued here is a mood. It's an emotion, isn't it? It's a psychological state. And this pursuit believes that we prosper and flourish as long as we can align our mood or align ourselves with what is suitable for creating this mood or this emotion and is suitable for maintaining and sustaining this mood or emotion. Okay, with all of that having been said, let me, let me throw out a couple of questions. Uh, what happens When the number one goal is creating and sustaining this mood called happiness, what happens when ethics get in the way? In other words, what happens when being happy is more important than being ethical? What happens when being happy is more important than being moral? What happens when our unpersonal happiness is more important than other people? Well, the answer is a downward spiral into moral decadence. That's the answer. And that's who would argue that that's not where we are right now. I mean, we have a tendency to place uh, the industry and maintenance of our own happiness above all else in varying degrees, of course, varying degrees. But the result is obsessive self-absorption. And we care more about, as a culture, we care more about being happy than anything else. I mean, we're willing to throw our marriages under the bus to be happy. We're willing to throw our kids under the bus to be happy. We'll throw our jobs under the bus to be happy. We'll throw our families under the bus to be happy. In fact, we'll throw practically anything under the bus that gets in the way of this mood. And that's, that's what's going on all over the place. That's where we are. That's the trajectory we're on. Okay, what is the biblical corrective to this? You know, before I even get into that, I have a note here, I have a sentence here. Tell me if you think this is true. I think that many believe the Bible prefers that we be unhappy. I think that many people believe that the Bible, that this book actually, it prefers that we'd be unhappy, that if you followed this, this would make you unhappy. Um, Is that the case? No way. No way. How do I know that? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed together in communion with one another for all eternity in a happiness, a blessed state that is beyond our comprehension. And the whole point in creating creatures, creating us, is so that we can share in that blessedness and in that happiness. And God has made us in such a way that we would desire happiness. He's made us in such a way that we would desire happiness. In fact, Jesus appeals to this very notion when He calls us to Himself. Listen to just a couple of verses. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or whoever whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus doing? He's warning us. He's warning us that if if you don't turn, if you don't repent, if you don't come and follow, you're going to be really miserable. And it's a powerful argument because he has created us in such a way that we don't want to be really miserable. And he is appealing to that. Very thing with these verses, isn't he? It's very powerful. We have this desire that we want to be happy. And it's the very desire to find happiness that Jesus appeals to. You know, if you forfeit your life, you're not going to be very happy. In fact, you're going to be quite miserable. That's his point. Now, positively, Jesus uses the prospect of blessedness to appeal to our desire for the same when he gives us what we call the Beatitudes. That's what we've read in our Scripture passage this morning. Some of you will have headings that says the Beatitudes. Uh, That comes after the Latin word beatus, which means uh, happy, blessed. Uh, We need to be careful with that definition, happy, for obvious reasons. It will make more sense here in a few minutes. But the term blessed that we find in all of these verses of our text is a translation of the Greek word Makarios. Uh, which means, it could be translated happy. I think it's wise that our translators don't use the word happy today uh, because of our great misconceptions of what happiness means. Uh, blessedness is a very good translation of that word. Notice that Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the hungry, or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, and etc., etc. Now, there's an attractive... There are some attractive prospects here that appeal to our desire to want to be happy, aren't there? For example, in verse 3, there's the idea of inheriting the kingdom of heaven. I think we would all like to do that. In verse 4, there's this idea of comfort. In verse 5, inheriting the earth. Uh, We may receive an inheritance in this life, but we realize it's a temporary thing, isn't it? We receive an inheritance today and tomorrow... uh, Uh, someone else receives it. Uh, It's temporary, but inheriting the earth permanently. That's attractive. Verse six, satisfaction. That's an attractive prospect. Verse seven, mercy. Verse eight, seeing God. Verse nine, adoption as sons and daughters of God. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be studying adoption on Wednesday nights. It's a tremendous, tremendous doctrine. Tremendous doctrine. So you see how all of this appeals to our desire to want to be happy. But I want you to notice something very carefully here. This is why I want to stick very closely with my notes. I don't want you to miss this. Okay, look at the various moods or emotions that are present. Go back to verse 3. Poor in spirit. That doesn't sound real happy. Does it? I mean, that doesn't sound like something we would call happiness, poor in spirit. No, it's owning up to our spiritual bankruptcy. That's what that phrase means, owning up to our spiritual bankruptcy. Verse four, mourning. Happy are those who mourn. Jesus is making reference to a a very agonizing experience, actually, an agonizing emotion. He's making reference to the painful act of mourning over our sin against God. Not regretting our sin that we did all this stuff. That's a different matter. That leads to death, actually. It's mourning over sin because we have violated God, you see. There's a big difference big, big difference. It's agonizing. I've shared some of my own experiences with that, you know, and some of you have shared shared your experiences with it. It's not fun. It's, it's, It's not fun. Verse five, meekness. You know, according to the ESV study Bible, the meek are those quote, who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas. They They do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas. This couldn't be more opposite than what is what often takes place in the name of happiness today. Because if we want to be happy and if that's our main goal in life and you're in the way. It's going to be tough. Look at verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they prosecute or persecuted the prophets who were before you. <laughs> There's a question. It's probably we're all pondering right now is how in the world could happiness or blessedness be associated with being reviled, persecuted, falsely charged? These are all agonizing experiences, aren't they not? I mean it really it really is terrible to be accused of something you didn't do. And the thoughts of all uh, all kind of people believing you actually did it when you didn't do it is a terrible experience. So what are we going to do with that? How are we to make sense of that? Uh, the, the very first thing that we're going to do is, is in fact I mean this is going to make no sense at all to us unless we jettison, unless we get rid of that whole notion The whole idea that we have of happiness as being simply a mood or an emotion or some type of psychological state. We have to get rid of that. Uh, Happiness as a true blessedness has to be something else. The question before us is, what is it? Uh, What is it? And the answer rests in the common denominator of all these verses. Uh, each verse describes a state that rests in a favorable position with God. Let me let me give you some examples. Uh, poor in spirit, for instance. And mourning. That reflects what we call a contrite heart, right? That reflects contrition. What is contrition? It's that idea of realizing, okay, you've been awakened to the fact that you're sinning. And awakened to the fact, as we all know, we're sinning but awaking to the fact that we're, we're violating a holy and just God. We're violating a loving being that has given us everything that's good in our lives with our sin. And the effect of that is this, 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 this woeful experience of sorrow and desire to, to turn from it and to walk in righteousness. That is the idea of contrition here. Isaiah 57 verse 15 famously says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God dwells with people like this. It's not real comfortable to be like this. But this is who God dwells with. When we compare that to verses 3 and 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see the parallel. In fact, in each of the Beatitudes, there's a reflection of an inner attitude, isn't there? And the inner attitude often is not very joyous but yet the person is in a a state of blessedness, a state of happiness. Why? Because they're in a state of rightness with Almighty God. So you see, happiness is not so much a subjective psychological state, as it is an objective relational state. Does that make sense? And The Beatitudes, they reflect the inner attitude of a heart that can only be shared by a person who has been converted by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Out of the box, this is not how we are, is it? In fact, out of the box, the way we calm, uh, we're the exact opposite of this. We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger for the happiness that we've just been talking about. We we hunger and thirst to uh, jump on our sinful nature and to feed that, don't we? Uh, Because we think that's what will make us happy. Uh, But what we have expressed in the Beatitudes is the attitude of one who has received a new heart from God, one who's been born again, if we might use Jesus' language in John 3. And this new heart comes to us by way of the cross. Jesus came, he lived a life that was... Perfectly described by these Beatitudes. As I said in my pastoral prayer, you want to know what Jesus is like, study the Beatitudes. And I would even go as far to say that the Beatitudes are expressed to us in the English language. They were originally expressed to us in the Greek language. But Christ is bigger than the language. There are language barriers here that don't properly express how magnificent the heart of Jesus is. It far surpasses the Beatitudes, at least how they're expressed. I think when we get in heaven, we'll have a whole new language to communicate, one that's far beyond what we're communicating with now. And we will see for ourselves. The Beatitudes express the very heart of Jesus perfectly, perfectly. And all of this having been said, Jesus was a man of sorrow. Do you see? Do you see where I'm up to here? There never was a human being who walked this earth who was more blessed than Christ. Yet he was a man of sorrow. And as a man of sorrow, he gave his perfect life up in order to share his perfect blessedness with us. At the cross, He invites us to partake of this perfect happiness. And this could not be more counterintuitive to us, could it? It's counterintuitive. I mean, without grace, we flee from this. But with grace, we join Him in it. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, first, we learn that happiness is not a subjective mood or emotion, but it's an objective reality. You might want to write that down. I'm going to give you five lessons that we learned from this. There's 50 I'm just gonna. I thought about giving you three. You know, it's easier to remember three. But I think ah, I don't remember three too good either. So if you're not gonna remember three, I might as well give you five. If you're not gonna remember them, uh, but if you write them down, you're gonna get them. And uh, uh, the first is that we learn that happiness is not so much a subjective mood or emotion, but it's an objective reality. Now, what do I mean by that? True happiness, the happiness that Jesus enjoys. Is not merely a mood or emotion. It's not what it is. His happiness, his blessedness resides in his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, In fact, remember what Jesus said in John 17. He said, This is eternal life. Okay, well, what does he mean by eternal life? When you think of eternal life, and eternal life comes up in the Bible, the phrase eternal life encompasses this great happiness. It encompasses okay, eternal bliss and, and blessedness beyond our imagination. And Jesus says that uh, this is eternal life, uh, that they know you, the only true God. You see, it rests in this knowledge of the true God and Jesus whom you have sent. And what is Jesus doing when he's praying these words? He's preparing to be arrested uh, where he will be, he'll be given a kangaroo court and uh, then he'll be crucified unjustly. That's what's going on. That's the context of this. And in the midst of all of the rejection, persecution, and sorrow, Jesus, he prays this way in verse 25. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. He's clinging to the facts. He's clinging to to the blessedness that he has, the blessedness that he has and the respect that he knows, the Father. And he has this this perfect relationship with the Father. Uh, So this takes true blessedness out of the realm of simply a personal feeling, a feeling that comes and goes, a feeling that is fickle, and it places true blessedness into a real relationship that transcends our fleeting emotions. You know, it was last, you know, it was last Sunday. Um, I was with before the service. I was with Donald and Alex, and uh, I can't remember what we were talking about. But I said, "Listen, I don't, I don't really feel all that close to God this morning." I gotta say, I really don't feel all that close to God. Uh, but I think you guys will agree. I was quite calm about that. I mean, I, I didn't let that bother me. Why? Because my feelings are all over the place. My feelings are just like your feelings. Our feelings are everywhere, aren't they? Our feelings can't be trusted. Television, it makes for a great television show. You know, trust your God, that makes for a good television show, but it doesn't make for a good pilgrimage in this life. Our our feelings are all over the place. I'm not going to try to navigate through this world with my feelings. I got a promise. Jesus promises to be with me till the end of the age. That's what I'm going to rest in. I don't necessarily always wake up in the morning and feel close to God, but I have his promise that I am close to God. I have his promise. I have his promise. All this is to say that our feelings are fickle. But if you're in Christ Jesus, your relationship is solid. Therefore, you are blessed beyond your comprehension. Regardless of how you feel, you see. Blessedness is not this happy mood. It's the subjective reality, namely that we're in this relationship with God. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that you know the Father and Jesus whom he has sent. Second thing, we learn that happiness is not divorced from, but connected to morality. Remember what I said earlier. If we're on about being happy, and that's the most important thing to us, what happens when morality gets in the way? What happens when right and wrong gets in the way? We'll just commit wrongs all over the place because we want to be happy. But that's not, that, that's devilish, actually. That's demonic. That's not true blessedness. Think of Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed, that's the Hebrew, ashray. It means essentially, it's a very close parallel to the, the Greek, makarios. It's very close. It says blessed, happiness, if you will. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see the relationship between the blessed state and prosperity? Now, these verses describe Christ. Jesus is the only true one that is blessed The true blessed one. But they also describe those who are in Christ Jesus in a progressive way. This is what we're becoming. This is where God has taken us. He's taken us into true blessedness. But it's a blessedness that's not divorced from morality. It's a blessedness that's not divorced from ethics. It's a blessedness that embraces righteousness. It's a blessedness that embraces God's word and lives by God's word because it is a belief system that believes that we'll only be happiest when we're following God's word. Does that make sense? Third, we learn that happiness is not a goal, but a wonderful byproduct of living for God instead of ourselves. We learned that happiness is not a goal, but a wonderful byproduct of living for God and others instead of ourselves. You know, the obsessive self-absorption that is all around us today is a miserable condition. It's a miserable condition. The more self-absorbed we are, the worse off we are, and the worse off are those who are around us. That's just a fact. The more self-absorbed we are, the worse we are, and the worse are those who are around us. Self-absorption, is it makes us like the demons. But true happiness describes the one who is more like Christ. It's like, more like Christ. You know, when Jesus, had, when Jesus came to the point of the decision, throw his bride under the bus and be happy, what decision did Jesus make? When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's calling on the Father, he said, He's saying if there's some other way, you know, if we can go about this another way. You know I'm all ears here. You know the story. It's where he's sweating the drops of blood. Here's the most blessed human being who's ever walked the earth. And he's under so much stress that the capillaries in his blood vessels are bursting and, and blood is running out of his uh, out of his uh, pores of his skin. How am I doing with the medical stuff, Alex? Is that, is that what it's that's it, right? The most blessed one, yet under so much stress that he's buckling under it. But one thing he won't do is throw his bride under the bus. He won't do that to make himself happy. He will not do that because he has come to make his church happy, you see. He's come to make us happy. Here we could see how the gospel applies to happiness, can't we? It's in the death of self. And the the living for other people, living for God, living for others, you see. That's exactly how the gospel applies to this. Christ was happy to suffer for his people. Christ was blessed to suffer for us. Fourth, happiness If happiness is just a mood and if this mood is our goal in life and if our life depends on this mood, how are we ever going to deal with suffering? How in the world are we ever going to deal with suffering if life is about maintaining this happy mood all the time? Fact is, we're not going to deal with it. We're not gonna make I, I hear all this rhetoric about war on drugs and stuff, and quite frankly, we're not gonna make any we're not gonna I, we're not gonna make any progress in this until we get this down. As long as happiness is conceived as this mood and keeping as long as we're on this course, we're we're gonna continue to lose the war on, on drugs. It's not until we begin to understand, wait a second, this is not true happiness that I'm pursuing here. You mean to tell me the true happiness is pursued by breaking the law and by doing things I'm not supposed to be doing? No, that's not going to bring you to happiness. It's going to give you a, it's give you a little lift. It's going, to, it's going to do things for you that are attractive for the, for the short period of time, but where is it going to leave you after it's over? It's going to leave you feeling more soft than you were before. Well oh, then, what are you going to do? Well, it's modus operandi it's just to go back and continue doing what we did before, and then it just keeps on going and going and going and going and going. It's not going to make any progress until we make until we begin to understand this is not what happiness is. We are not going to be able to stand up under the trials of life living like this. It's just simply not going to happen. It's never going to happen. There will be no true relief from this until we see that. That happiness is not simply an emotion that we call happy. And lastly, we learn that true happiness is not found in isolation from others. This is real important. You know, a lot of the houses that have been constructed over the last 10 or 15 years, there's something I've noticed about them they don't have sidewalks to the front porch, they've got driveways that go to the garage door. And it's very clear that this is pretty much the only traffic. It's you, you, you buzz into the driveway, you hit the button on the visor, and the door opens, and you go inside, and you hit that button again, and the outside world closes behind you. And couple that with all of the advertising, agents, advertising um, ads that we see all the time, you know, that contentment is me on my boat with the wind going through my through my hair and that's it you know that's the blessed life you know you know when you watch them commercials remember that isolation is a form of punishment. you put someone in solitary confinement and you're gonna get their attention fast just put them in a room and leave them in there all by themselves. It's a big lie that's a big lie. We need to learn that true happiness is not found in isolation from others. We do not find true happiness in our crass individualism. We do not find true happiness in throwing those around us under the bus. We find true happiness in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we find true happiness with each other, living for God and others. True happiness is not found in pleasure seeking. It's not where it is. Heavenly Father... Lord, we call on you this morning, Father, for your grace. For, Father, we need so much adjustment. Father, we need correct. We need correction in this area of happiness. We need your corrective, Father. We can speak these things. We can utter these things. But, Father, we, we do depend on you, Father, without your working grace in our hearts. Uh, there will be no, no change. Father, we do pray that, Lord, you would work not only in our hearts, but you would work in the hearts of our culture, Father, that we would see the the deception of this. We would see the folly of this. We would see the danger of this, that we would turn from this, and that we would see the true living as living in Christ Jesus. And, O Father, may your cross, may the cross of Christ Jesus, awaken us to these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.